0: This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. We have a a tall task today, and it's one that I'm looking forward to because we're going to try to, as much as we can do bondage of the will this morning, which will probably bleed over and a little to the afternoon, and then we'll do as much in Galatians as we can, so that tomorrow, as it seems that the Spirit is leading, we will try to give most of the day to the antinomian disputations. Because um, that, that seems to be where all of the... No one else in America
1: is saying yes. Yeah. Antinomian What
0: that say this is a this is a really peculiar group. That's
1: not what it
0: But this morning we'll start with bondage. I'm gonna I'm gonna give just some brief historical and theological introduction stuff. Um and then I've tried to break it into three parts where we'll look at it because um you know Luther considered this work along with his two catechisms as the most significant thing he had written. Um, But the thing thing is, it's not the most well-structured. The thing is hard to follow in having a sort of coherent order because of particularly how he's responding to Erasmus. Um, So what we'll try to do is group ideas together and discuss them that way. And we're not going to be able to talk about everything. Um, I think particularly how Luther talks about the clarity or the perspicu- perspicuity of Scripture. That's something we'll probably just have to set aside while we chase other topics. We don't care about that I
1: yeah. read that out two days ago, and here you are just <laughs> blowing me off. I know.
0: Just read page 73 and 74.
2: That'll do it. You dumb Erasmus, you can't read Scripture. <laughs> um,
0: as I like to do, I want to illustrate first um, for Luther how this theology plays out in the small catechism um, so in the third article of the creed it says "You know, I believe in the Holy Spirit one holy Christian church so forth and so on Luther says what is this and the, the answer of what the, the, the article of the Holy Spirit means for me is that I believe that by my own understanding or strength I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him But instead, the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, made me holy, and kept me in the true faith, just as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and makes holy the whole Christian church.
2: That's a lot of interpretation into the creed. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's how he takes it, though, from that that statement of second level to, how do I teach this to somebody else? and really I think what that sort of statement says for Luther and what the bondage of the will says for Luther is the need for apocalypse. The need for something to break through into my life and to release me from the various ways that I'm imprisoned. Um, on an existential level we're all looking for um, you know, that moment on the Damascus road when we're struck down and addressed by the voice of the gospel and the word. Probably in less thrilling ways, of course, but that's exactly how it plays out for all of us. Um, have any of you seen the movie by P.T. Anderson, Magnolia? I seen it. Uh, Magnolia is a good sort of a- illustration of the bondage of the will. Um, and I said, just watch it and you'll see.
1: Um, that's scene. the one with Tom Cruise yeah. and the cab driver?
0: No. No, he's a. Um,
2: it's Steel Magnolias.
1: <laughs>
0: in Magnolia, Tom Cruise gives seminars to men on how to be uh, sexually dominant. Oh, wow. um, the movie is about a whole bunch of characters who are trapped in sort of their sin and the sins of those who have preceded them. Um, and it's a good illustration, I believe, of how the only thing that can release you is something from outside of yourself. Um, you've got people who are trapped in their ignorance, thinking everything is okay, and you've got people who are desperately looking, um, but they can't find anything to make them better until literally um, frogs fall from the sky. <laughs> um, so I, I would just recommend that to you um, as if you're looking for a sort of commentary. Can on I lunch. take my wife? it's Why? It's you can. It's a little risque. I'll, I'll say it's a little racy at points. Um, it's got some language and stuff, but... Um, it's, it's not enough that it would scare me off of recommending it to anyone. Um, Let's we'll talk about Erasmus for a few minutes. Um, Erasmus was about 16 years um, Luther's senior. He was born in Rotterdam, which is in the Netherlands. <clears throat> he had this sort of great early education, but he became a monk, which was very much um, against his desires, it seems like. And he was so unhappy as a monk that he eventually left to go do humanistic study in Paris, um, which was a very disappointing thing for him. He found humanistic studies um, very dead and dry and traditional um, until he went on this trip to England. Um, Erasmus was going to England regularly, and he met a group of English humanists, which really um, they showed him the importance of studying the original languages. Um, and with that, and al- along with some other events, that was what really drove him to producing um, his critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which, as I remembered, came out in 1516. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Erasmus established his reputation as a great scholar sort of early in his career, um, but he, kind of like Luther, was always in bad health. Um, He was living solely off of his lecturing, um, so he was also very poor. Um, Like Luther, he didn't like the Pope growing up. He didn't like what he saw happening in the church. Um, While he was in England, he wrote a work called In Praise of Folly, which is just this sort of biting satire um, about the way that the church was working then, about the state of um, the clergy and even the Pope himself. Um, at one point, he was, you know, asked to go have a position in Rome, and he denied it because he didn't like the pope and he was afraid of academic freedom. Um, that all changed when Pope Leo X came along. Um, pope Leo was the one Luther addresses in Freedom of a Christian. Um, Leo was his friend. Um, Leo released him from his earlier. Uh, monastic vows so that he could just do his scholarly work, so he's sort of this great patron of Erasmus's. Um,
1: they were friends beforehand, before Leo gave yeah.
0: yeah. He's, he eventually settles in Basel, Switzerland, and that's where his sort of headquarter ends up being, and by this time he is known all throughout Europe, amongst people who care about these things, as being perhaps the greatest scholar um, he just has this, this great reputation, uh, probably the most learned man in Europe. And he had the ear of the pope. He had the ear of kings. Um, important people would listen to him. Um, and many, especially earlier in his time, thought that Erasmus was going to be the one to bring about the reform of the church. Um, it just didn't seem... Uh, Unthinkable that Erasmus would be this guy because so much of his writing was about showing the corrupt state of um, the clergy and the monks, even um, indulgences the various ways that things were preached and presented to people. Um, he was so hardcore about this that he made you know enemies among the clergy and the monks, and they were plotting his downfall. Um, because what he really wanted, he just wanted it to see these abuses fixed, a simple gospel preached. Um, he wanted scripture to be read to people and for people to get along living a simple moral life. Um, when you boil Erasmus down, it really comes down to this idea of we just need to get back to living simply and trying to follow um, God's commands. But the, the problem with Erasmus is as a Humanist, he was not a great theologian. He didn't have a deep and abiding care for theology. So when he saw all of these excesses and abuses, he couldn't then see how they were supported by the broader theology of the church, how that there was something undergirding and establishing these practices. So when he tried to deal with them, it was sort of a a surface level issue rather than cutting straight to the heart of the matter. Um, <clears throat> we might say that there were, there were really four stages to the Erasmus-Luther relationship which bring us to the bondage of the will. Um, the first is just that after 1517 most people speculated that these guys were on the same side, that they were going to work together um, even though they were two very different kinds of men. Um, And part of what affected this was that many of Luther's compatriots, such as Melanchthon or a guy named Eustace Jonas, they were all friends and deep admirers of Erasmus. So even though Luther himself might not have been, the people he surrounded himself with um, were great admirers of Erasmus. Um, But as you're progressing on from 1517 between that time and 1520, it starts to become very clear um, that these two guys just aren't compatible, um, even down to who are their theological heroes. Um, for Luther, it's Augustine. For Erasmus, it's Jerome. You know, they, they, they just align themselves in ways that um, naturally everything is going to be a battle. Um, and Luther particularly became fed up with Erasmus's non-theological approach. He says, you're not focusing on grace in Christ. Um, But he tried to keep his opinions quiet at this time. Even he could see that Erasmus is this great scholar. He wants to leave open the possibility of working with him if um, Erasmus could come around. Because at this point, he sees that Erasmus knows that the Pope and the way that the church is working right now is sort of a plague on the people so we can all agree together that something has to happen. Um, When Melanchthon arrived in 1518 in particular, that was supposed to be movement towards working together between these two great guys.
1: Did Melanchthon ever study directly under Erasmus? Or who was,
0: where did Melanchthon
1: receive his
0: humanism? That's a good question. He didn't, I don't think he studied under Erasmus. Um, He was in Germany somewhere, I'm pretty sure. The name, the name. I'll get back to you on that. Do
1: oh. you know who the English humanists were that kind of turned Erasmus back to Athanasius? Mm-hmm. I,
0: I don't. Yeah, the early English humanism is completely off my screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't really know how many of them around that time are well-known figures. I could be wrong, but it's not when you read that, that story it's not something you hear about those guys very often um, <clears throat> um, 1520 marks the real break between the two um, the distinction between the two became particularly clear in Luther's um, 1520 treatises um, because Erasmus explained that you know, you're, at- you're attacking the Pope too harshly and you're attacking the monks too harshly um, but on the other hand, Erasmus still didn't think that the papal bull, uh, ex-Sergei Domine, was an appropriate response to these things. Um, above all, the one thing that Erasmus wanted was peace. Um, so even though he wanted to disagree with him, they're always still trying. He's trying to say, Luther, just tone it down a little bit, set it aside, and we'll try to work together. <laughs> Um, what the value see? of
1: humanism, going back to our Ashton class, was to pull all the different voices. If you could pull them into one, that was, that was highly productive. <coughs> yeah. Well, I have another <coughs> question, final fundamental question. The how
2: was Erasmus solicited to challenge. refute? <coughs> was that how it happened, refute Luther, or was it the other way around? Uh, well, how did he get called on the draft? to play in this baseball game of trying to refute mm-hmm. this mess yeah. that Luther had, was making. Yeah. I'm curious.
0: Um, throughout 15, you know, 17 and on, um, Erasmus is making people angry, Luther is making people angry, and these various sides are either trying to push them together or pull them apart. Um, and it eventually just reached a point where I think Erasmus felt compelled to make it clear how he stood in relation to Luther. And that starts to happen about 1523. Um, Erasmus wrote a letter to Zwingli and he critiqued Luther's understanding of paradox and his view of free will. Um, and around that time, Luther started comparing Erasmus's work on languages to Moses. He's done a good job leading us around the wilderness, but he will not bring us into... The promised land of <laughs> theological study. <laughs> um, Historical
1: typology. <laughs> I'm gonna start doing that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm starting giving you guys Old Testament typologies. we also thanks, Dave. Yeah. We're excited, <laughs> man. <laughs> We're excited. Um, I
0: be <laughs> Erasmus started writing this treatise, and the, the interesting thing is that Luther found out, and he actually tried to suggest a truce between the two that the thing not be published, um, because the only thing that's going to happen out of this is greater disunity, um, more fractiousness, and Luther, at this point, thought, this is just not necessary between the two of us. Um, Plus he, he was writing
2: a thousand other books that are at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So he's not like, you has got time to mess with this. Don't yeah. give me another book project. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah,
0: yep. and that, I think that's part of the wa- reason why this thing is so sort of scattershot organized. It's because it seems like he's got delibero um, servo that you know on the free will sitting there, and he's just okay. I'm gonna. It's just working through it, critiquing it, sort of point by point. Um, what stage are we at? Four. Okay. Yeah. Um, Erasmus does go ahead and write it. He writes a letter to the the King of England and says the die is cast. Um, I know what I've done now. And it sort of points to this idea that it was a writing that was done out of inner con- or in- compulsion and not so much an inner conviction of its necessity.
2: Um, what? Sorry. Explain why he wrote to the king of England.
0: They were friends.
2: Oh. Yeah. So just, it's more like I'm the writing a letter to you yeah. telling me about what's going on in my life. Yeah. This is a historical document we know what Erasmus was thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just points to the fact that Erasmus, the hesitant scholar, engaged in this debate with Luther because he thought, I've got no other choice by this point. Um, if I don't stand up and say what I believe about this, people are just going to continue to either force me for or against Luther. And that's just not something he was interested in letting happen.
1: And this point was particularly on the will.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that Luther, or Erasmus compared Luther's reforming work um, to that of Pharaoh. He says he is a necessary scourge. He didn't like it. He thought in some ways it was evil, but he knew um, that it had to happen.
2: Who's he? I lost the pronoun.
0: Erasmus thought Luther was the sort of pharaoh of the Reformation,
2: yeah. Okay. Um, uh, there's another another tie. That's right. I mean,
1: yeah. Is that? No, it wouldn't be. I'm wondering because the hardening of Pharaoh's heart features prominently in <clears> the <throat> of will. I wonder if that was Luther turning the tables a little bit, or mm. probably not. Though I think that's just the text.
0: I think it's probably it just. Yeah, you are the man. The main locus yeah. of that sort of question. Um, but while Erasmus thought that about Luther's reforming work, he thought Luther, the person, was still very much worthy of respect. Um, so that's just interesting to me. Erasmus is probably a more level-headed human being than our good buddy Luther.
2: So therefore, was Erasmus' um, language in his work less inflammatory? Mm-hmm. It
0: still has some needling and it's, you know, I I got the feeling
2: reading uh-huh. all of this that Erasmus, if if, if he were in a class, mm-hmm. he would get his scholarship would be a, a B and Luther would be an A. Is, is it, help me with that?
0: Depends on the class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Erasmus would run Luther under the table if it were languages or um, studies of a lot of ancient texts. If it were disputing um, philosophical or theological ideas, I think Luther at least would overpower him just by sheer <laughs> will of
2: force: um, by It's like the modern debate between biblical studies and systematic theology
0: it it really it, that really is um, it's an insightful comparison, um, because when I go to biblical studies conferences, we work very much at the level of sort of Erasmus,
2: and... They pride themselves on not making sweeping theological claims yeah. and making <coughs> systematic observations or importing those to the text.
0: Yeah, which I think is... Silly. Really silly. Amen. Yeah, yep. silly. <laughs> that's That's why I'm glad that someone like Jono started this class as a New Testament person, because... Um, Seminaries need to be the place where that cross-pollination reappears. Um, otherwise, sorry we don't need to be talking about the, what the seminary needs to do, but if, if we are making those sort of distinctions um, in the seminary, we're not going to aid people in moving from you know, second-order discourse to the first-order
2: discourse right. of proclamation. That's right. Um, it's a very real problem in seminaries. Yeah, the graduates right. don't know how to think theologically. At least, I struggled with it in the seminary I went to.
0: Yeah, and I'm not. I wouldn't, I'm not just going to pat the back of Knox, but I do think this place is pretty good in trying to yeah. jump those fences. Uh, at least the two pe- two main people I've known here, with John O and Mike Allen, you know, that was.
2: What do you mean, Zach? That they they don't think theologically? Would... Um. In brief, we graduated from seminary always being told in a biblical studies class, don't impose on the text. And so there's always this wall around making, uh, thinking about systematic theological issues. But we were asked at the end to submit a doctrinal paper that we had to defend. And nobody could do that because they felt so paralyzed by the fact that I'm reading into the text now. And so none of them were prepared to go into a denomination or a church and uh, experience theology on the ground. and I mean, I'm I'm being very like sweeping with that, Right. but I just those are my friends. Those are the, the feeling of people coming through seminary, largely because biblical studies was strong I think, for seminary, and therefore that kind of held sway. And so even when we were in our systematics class, we were all like chuckle, chuckle, like this these guys don't really know their Bible as well, right. kind of thing. Um. The effect of which becomes
1: when you learn a methodology of preaching. You just go through Matthew and you go one passage at a time and you just take that passage as that passage. And you, the argument or debate I always have with the preaching professor there, who I'm still friends with, I just say, Jesus is the context of all Scripture. Because he will come at me with, just preach the context, just preach the context, just preach the context. And my response is, Jesus is the context of all Scripture. He's the authorial intent. (laughs) They really want to narrow, narrow the stream of what is. Particularized in any one passage. Which is why Luther and just transitioning back to bondage. That's why Luther seems so repetitive because he'll take Erasmus at each place, but he'll keep coming back to the same idea. No, but you haven't considered the whole thing. You're just considering this thing. Consider the whole thing. Right.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's a particularly acute problem for people who want to preach law gospel sermons because not every text in the lectionary has gospel in it. (laughs) If you just preach content, 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 you know, you'll leave people in the ground. Um, Luther didn't immediately respond to Erasmus because he was busy. When he does, his response is about four times as long as Erasmus's. Um, It's more harsh, it's more blunt, Erasmus sort of cooled off later in life with regard to this debate. Um, He was willing to grant difference of opinion on matters of theology, and he was willing to concede that to the theologians. Um, Luther never spoke positively of Erasmus again. Um, For him, this relationship was just sort of over, and Erasmus was um, an enemy of the church, basically
1: never uh, never again, even about his new testament
0: i don't, I don't think it i think it would have been one of those things where even if you were to mention the New Testament you know we weren't we are not going to mention this name mm-hmm. um, or or particularly point out um, the usefulness of um, of his contribution yeah <clears throat> um some of the theological introduction I was going to talk about I'll just leave it to our discussion um, one of the basic differences is that Erasmus holds you know, the humanist or scholastic picture of the division of man where you are spirit, soul, and flesh the spirit is sort of the higher thing in man which allows you to be going towards God Um, And the flesh is the lower, the baser part of you, which is driving you towards um, the animals. And the soul is the thing in between Um, that can go either way. It can choose. It has power to go up or down, to choose grace or to turn away from it. Um, Because it's free. And for Erasmus, there is this sense that kind of everything is grace So that's where Luther continually has to get on to him for saying, you're not being clear about what you're saying, um, about whether the will can do something only with grace or apart from grace, because Erasmus just kind of said, everything's grace. You just sort of live in grace, as it were. Um, And Erasmus had a problem with Luther's view about man as being the mule who's ridden either by God or the devil, because for him that removed human responsibility for evil and it attributed it to God. Um, most of, Luther, of Erasmus's um, objections to Luther's view are the same things that you will hear in your church. You know, it's the same sorts of worries. Um, how can I? take the culpability off myself by attributing all of these things to the eternal predestining work of God whose foreknowledge necessitates all things. That sounds both terrible for me and it sounds terrible for God. Um, I think think Luther makes a fairly good case that that is not something to worry about as such. Um, As I've already said, for Erasmus, peace and stability were the important thing because he believed there was time we will educate the people. We will educate the people through our work, um, you know, from the sort of top down. We'll start with the educated people, we'll train them better. And it will flow down, and society will get better. Um, and for Luther. Ashley What?
1: We're just making connections to this class we took with Ashley Hill in January. Okay. I think it was really helpful
2: in a lot
0: yeah, I, I, hope, I hope I'm hope i never contradicting, <laughs> actually. No.
2: I mean, it was all in the English context, but the reason that Henry started gravitating toward humanism was precisely because of the end game, which was a peaceful, submissive, moral society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Henry wanted a very moral kingdom, and humanism seemed to do that, produce that better than scholasticism could. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering if it was moral, moral or... I've always thought about it in terms of obedience. He wanted
1: an obedient kingdom. Or was it I don't know that... I think I know that he distinguished between this. I don't think i Oh, okay, okay, Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's all... The morality morality is serving the king. Which is yeah, the theory. Okay. The yeah. Okay. Yeah, morality is doing what I say. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: Good. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of morality <laughs> yes, for these guys is is just simple living. According yeah, according. yeah, according to Social sort of order. clear, straight, you know, easy to see... Um, premises, yeah. so um, obviously don't kill people. Obviously obey the authority above you. Um, you know, just just avoid what's detrimental and do what's good. Like <laughs> it's that simple. Um, and we, we will teach you how to do this. Um,
1: and if we, we just get of course you will have to be free.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how when that's the end game it makes you a much more pragmatic theologian. Like mm-hmm. it's all about what produces that end game. And so it's kind of like for Henry or for Erasmus, they were wishy-washy because they yeah. just wanted to get to that place. Whereas Luther was like, you swept a bunch of things under the rug yeah. by mm-hmm. just always aiming there and never thinking about how you got there. Mm-hmm. And you made some really bad, like, yeah, that's fascinating to think through.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, objection in just a few minutes because Erasmus says this teaching on the bondage of the will will open up a floodgate of iniquity. And Luther says so be it. Uh, uh, this might so be the yes. case but it will be opening the gates of righteousness to those who hear the word. That's right. Um, and because for Luther it was precisely the case that contra Erasmus there is no time. There is no time for us to wait to, for the world to get better. Um, and people will not get better. Because
1: mm-hmm. he was living at the end of time, mm-hmm. or near it. Yeah, the Otherwise, world. Apocalyptic world.
0: Yeah, Before the return of Christ, um, the world will always be locked in an apocalyptic battle. People will always be ridden by God or the devil. People will never change. It doesn't matter how well-educated they are. Um, and I, th- I think that's, that's probably true. <laughs> We've not gotten much better since that time. We just find different ways to be bad. Um, You know, every... every, uh, Tip codes don't
2: say
0: (laughs) this. There's there's always something in um, human history to remind you that progress is just a myth. Just as there's always things in our daily lives that should point out that progress is mostly a myth. Um, One final thing I'll say is that for Erasmus... The word is bound, and it's a, and it's a particular word. Um, the truths of Scripture or the truths of theology um, should be spoken at specific times to specific people when it is appropriate. In other words, when it will sort of promote and drive towards the agenda we're looking for. Um, Luther says... The word is unbound, it's free, it should be given to all people at all times because all people need to know um, the knowledge of the truth. They all need to be exposed to the light of the gospel. It can't be confined to any time or place, it has to be given to all men and women at all times as often as we are available to do so. Um,
1: According to Erasmus, who decided? When to apply, if that's the right verb apply or speak the word to a particular person at a particular time for a particular need, what was the authority that said now, but not
0: now? My my inclination for Erasmus is that this line of thinking is not so much for developing a positive theory of when to do it, but it's in developing an argument for telling Luther not to do it. Right. (laughs) Um, That's always the way
1: this works. Yeah. So, so he developed that in, in reaction to Luke, but this wasn't the front end.
0: I, I, don't, I don't get the sense that Erasmus was thinking a ton about the preaching of the word and that sort yeah, of... How does that tie in know. with ad
1: fontes and back to the source and mm-hmm. the freedom of thought, which would be a value of humanism, let's follow truth, mm-hmm. and truth from all different places, whether it's classical or right. you know, non-particular particular.
0: You know, I think it just goes back to this idea that Erasmus is this guy who could um, publish in, in Praise of Folly. Uh, he is a guy who could critique when necessary, but it always had to be you know, brought through this filter of, is this going to upset peace for the right reasons and produce the right ends? And uh. Uh, for, Lu- for Luther, this is, <laughs> this is not the right reason. You're, you shouldn't be telling people about God's necessary f- foreknowledge. Um, That's not going to help anybody, and it's going to bring only instability. Um, So I I think you just have to go back and forth between those two poles of, yeah, we're going to try to seek truth, but this truth should only be used for these very specific ends. I think the crux of what Luther gets at with Erasmus is that if you assume you are free— you will end up in bondage. But if you start with this view that you are fully bound um, by sin, death, and the devil, the only way out is to proclaim the one who liberates you. So starting with an idea of freedom will help no one. Starting with the fact of bondage will help because the only thing you can do is point people to God and Jesus Christ for you
1: courses provide
0: a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.